So the first couple years we're like, yeah, we're gonna we're gonna make these like we're gonna make like representations of human organs, you know, from skin and, and the judges are like, yeah, whatever, let's let's see if there's let's see if someone will buy these first before we move them on to the semifinal round. So the first two years it was just like Nope, not don't believe you yet. No, don't believe you yet. Alright, no, let's that's um and then finally it was like oh J and J is paying for this stuff okay like we'll, we'll move you on to the semifinal round <laughs> as my co-founder Bob says the three most important things in a startup sometimes are timing timing and timing from Twin Cities Business this is by all means a show about innovation drive and purpose and the leaders who make business work in Minnesota. I'm Allison Kaplan, your host and editor-in-chief of Twin Cities Business Magazine, coming to you from the studios of our presenting sponsor, the University of St. Thomas Schultz School of Entrepreneurship, cultivating the next generation of problem solvers and innovators. The school offers undergraduate and graduate programs in entrepreneurship and corporate innovation, as well as community resources to support new ventures, family businesses, and corporate entrepreneurs. And now, by all means. A cancer diagnosis is often a life-changing event, a trauma that prompts survivors to reevaluate what's most important to them, what they want to do with the rest of their lives, if they're lucky enough to live to see another chapter. Ping Ye was diagnosed with Hodgkin's lymphoma in his 30s. A challenging chemotherapy protocol left him unable to walk even a block. He spent the downtime reading, thinking about life and purpose, business, and ultimately decided to move on from a career in software development that no longer felt fulfilling. But what he did next is what separates Ping from the rest of us. He set about transforming medical research by using stem cells to test drugs safely, accurately, quickly, and at scale. In 2014, he co-founded Stemonics, a breakthrough biotech company that's garnered worldwide attention for its mini brains and has picked up a whole host of awards from Grand Prize at the Minnesota Cup to the Medical Alley Award to Most Disruptive Company from Singularity University's Exponential Medicine. Stemonics recently joined forces with Viant Bio to continue its work in microorgan technology a move that allowed Ping to step away from the administrative side of the business to focus on innovation. He comes by it rightly. Unlike some Minnesota entrepreneurs who feel compelled to take their big ideas to Silicon Valley, Ping did the reverse. Uh, I grew up in what people would consider Silicon Valley, but back in the 70s and 80s, it, um, I don't think it was as hyper as it is today. I do remember you know, going to school with kids who would have, you know, Steve Jobs come in through the kitchen in the early days of Apple <laughs> or, you know, things like that. So it was kind of commonplace and we didn't really think too much about it. I don't think startup back then was as maybe front and center as were, it is today. Were your parents in tech uh, or in startups? That's a great question. So... My my parents immigrated um, from Taiwan in the late 60s, early 70s, and my dad was a mechanical engineer, PhD. He got that at the University of Rhode Island with kind of an emphasis in um, nuclear engineering. He married my mom, uh, and they moved then to Sunnyvale, California, where he worked on a startup that his brother... <laughs> 
had um, one of his brothers had started. And then my mom, you know, when you move to a new country, you might have had a previous degree or background, but you kind of have to start over, you know, when mm -hmm. you're an immigrant. And so she uh, started at uh, Control Data as a technician. Mm. And uh, amazingly, she, you know, she did well as a uh, technician operator checking magnetic tape. <laughs> and her manager said, you know, Jean, you, you might consider this new thing. It's called computer programming. <laughs> <laughs> oh, so she rode the wave, multiple waves of, of computer programming and ended up as the global head of HP's um, international procurement. So wow. <laughs> after a decade, a couple decades later, so she was amazing. And she's actually an inspiration to me on, on many things, um, business and managerial. My father then founded his own startup mm -hmm. uh, in kind of uh, power plant cables and, and things like that. So he, he did well. And unfortunately, in um, 2006, passed away from pancreatic cancer. But um, mm. yeah, that's kind of how it started. I guess I kind of lived and breathed tech and, and startups because my dad actually worked from home. And so I saw mm. how many hours it took to be an entrepreneur. And um, I, I knew it was good. <laughs> It, it took a lot of hours. Every time I would go downstairs for breakfast, he was already in the office working. And mm -hmm. uh, when I would say goodnight, he was in the office working. So mm -hmm. that, you know, that was interesting to see. Did it make you think, I want to do that too? Or that's, that's the way to be successful? Or did you think, I just want to go get a regular nine to five job? Mm, I think I had an interest in that, you know, to, to lead a company was definitely something that was planted in my mind in those early days. And then, of course, being in tech, I remember every so often my mom would bring things back from, from HP and um, new technologies, and, and I would just be fascinated by, by all of it and, all, and how quickly it changed, too, mm -hmm. especially in, in tech. Um, and, uh, yeah, so I just kind of lived and breathed the changing of tech even in our household. You went to UC San Diego and, and majored in engineering. Did you, were you thinking computers and tech at that point? Oddly, before I went to UC San Diego, my senior year, I had a project in neuroscience. I don't know if I even mentioned this. But no. It was, um, it was in behavioral sciences and was studying um, performance psychology or, and, and, and sports psychology. And it did well. So I actually took third in the state um, hmm. in, in, in that category at the State Science Fair for California. Well, see, you were a science guy. <laughs> I knew it. I, yeah, I was pretty nerdy. <laughs> but I was pretty, I also played, I was, my, my parents put me in a lot of different things, music. So I played French horn and, mm -hmm. and tennis and things like that. But um, I think that if that had happened my junior year, I don't think I would have become an engineer because I was so interested in neuroscience. Um, but receiving that recognition, third place states, you know, science fair for California, if that had happened my junior year, I think I would have gotten into a lot of mm. other universities than, than that. But I think my parents thought the safer bet because my dad's a mechanical engineer that why not you be a mechanical engineer and, 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 and do that. So that's kind of really following in my dad's footsteps and my parents knowing the tech world more than neuroscience. Okay. So so it was some years later before you got back to neuroscience then? Oh, yeah. So I've always, you know, everything that I do, neuroscience has always been in the background from a psychology standpoint. So I'm a kind of a um, 
psychology nut. I actually married <laughs> a psychologist. That's how crazy wow. I am. So, but but um, yeah, I, I sports psychology, performance psychology is a huge interest of mine. Uh huh. And so, whether it's music or athletics or um, peak performance in in business, it's there's applications in all of those areas. So. So did you ever work as a mechanical engineer or did you go right to, to business school? Oh, yeah, that's a great question. So, yes, um, definitely uh, was in uh, engineering and actually specifically um, a form of nanotechnology called nanotribology without the eyes glazing over. I can already see the audience going, oh, my gosh, here we go. But um, nanotechnology in the really important world of storage, data storage. So uh -huh. that's actually why I moved from UC San Diego to Minneapolis because of Seagate technology mm. and to work in their research and development uh, facility um, kind of on the border of Bloomington and Edina mm -hmm. and uh, working on the recording head technology and the interface, kind of the core, one of the core pieces of a hard drive and really the core technology that has enabled this internet technology age because now you can store not just gigabytes but terabytes and it really enables data centers or the cloud. I mean all of that needs to be stored somewhere mm -hmm. and hard drives are the way to do it and the reason why we can store so many gigabytes and terabytes is because of, of hard drives and then uh, so I did that for several years and then received my MBA at um, the Carlson School at the U and from there said you know maybe I would be interested in something more on the business development side and leveraging some of the technology background that I have. And so then I went all the way to the other end of the, of the company and supported a very large company, EMC, and which eventually got bought by Dell a few years ago. Mm. And so kind of worked my help through there. And then, then I went back into development and was asked to lead the first solid state drive program for Seagate. And um, so went from hard drives to solid state memory. And then uh, from there was asked to lead this global partnership, if you will, between Seagate and Samsung to develop some new technology inside of NAND flash. And without going into too many details, that was an amazing experience. And then from there, got recruited to work at a startup here in Eden Prairie that was bought by Dell called Compellent. And then when I got there, it was Dell and led the program management for the operating system development for that whole for for Dell for data centers. So lots of people in the tech world in Minnesota think, oh my gosh, my only path to success and stardom is to move to Silicon Valley. You did the the reverse. Actually, I did the, yeah, you're right. That, that is the reverse. Really weird. Um, was it was it culture shock coming here? Did did you notice differences in the tech community? You know, here versus where you grew up. Yes, yes, and, and it's it's even more apparent in biotech and in startup, mm -hmm. perhaps. Um, I, I I see the differences in a little bit of the openness and the mixing um, in in California and Silicon Valley. Um, you know, people are in the coffee shops and just out and about at the universities. There's just a lot more. The door is always open. There's mm -hmm. not sharing of ideas. Sharing of ideas. Interesting. Um, you could um, literally send a message to some CTO of a relatively good-sized company, and if you share an idea that's interesting and you want to discuss something, come on in, and you just have the conversation. There's mm -hmm. no, um, you know, pre 
relationship that even needs to exist. Hmm. So t- 2012, was it, that you you got sick? Mm-hmm. You, what were, you were at Dell at this time or, mm-hmm. or, or set the scene for us? What, what happened? I was at Dell. Um, all summer I wasn't feeling well. I started coughing, started getting itchy. It was just um, uncom- very uncomfortable. wasn't sleeping well because of all that. And um, went home for my grandfather's um, 95th or so um, birthday. It was supposed to be a five-day trip to go celebrate. Um, Beth and Laura came with me, and um, that's your my, wife, my and, wife, and, my and wife and daughter, uh-huh. Laura. And my my mom took one look at me, and she's like, "You're going to the hospital. You don't look wow, good." Wow, so a mother m- knows. Mother knows. So Monday, go in. And the doctor there at, at the urgent care, you know, one of those really experienced physicians that kind of was still working, you know, a couple days a week just to, you know, uh, stay sharp. He, within a couple of minutes, was like, oh, your left lung's not working, you know, in terms of your, your breathing. Wow. And, and, and he was amazing. So every time he would go and come back, he knew exactly what was the next next thing to do and before i knew it 10 or 12 days later i had a port put in um to my chest for the infusion of chemo and i think i was on chemo in less than two weeks you were diagnosed with with hodgkin's uh, lymphoma lymphoma, exactly what was the prognosis well i was stage two but um after eight rounds and gosh i don't know how many months of of chemo um i was told i was somewhat resistant to it it wasn't it wasn't it wasn't working hmm. and uh because i was supposed to even lose my hair and hadn't even lost my hair from the the traditional hmm. um chemo which was abvd a four drug cocktail and i then was told okay we have to try something different i think they had another patient like me that was resistant to abvd they never told me whatever happened to her hmm. But they said, we got to try something different. And they switched me to B-Cop, which is a seven-drug cocktail that has, over the years, been increased in potency by German oncologists. There was this moment where, before I took B-Cop, they said, well, we're going to send you in for a, um, to, to measure your, your heart, heartbeat uh, as an echocardiogram mm-hmm. and, and listen to the valves and... I'm like, well, why do you need to do that? You know, and it's like, well, you know, we need to listen to what it sounds like before this B cup. You oh know? my goodness! Because <laughs> it was more potent, uh, more toxic than even ABVD. Um, I think the A is uh, doxorubicin, which is a, a common drug that has potential cardiac related so side they, effects. They were worried that this drug that was hopefully going to kill the cancer might actually harm kill you. Me. Yeah, kill me, harm <laughs> me. Affect you know the course of my life in a negative way, yeah. <laughs> and and so I had to go. Then I went and beat cop, and they measured my heart afterwards, and uh, luckily it hadn't changed. And but there wasn't much choice. It's like, well, you're gonna take this, and now we're gonna measure your heart and see if it's. It was a gamble. That yes, you... it was a gamble. Yeah, for sure. And you thought maybe it doesn't need to be a gamble. Yeah, maybe it's can we find safer and more effective medicines. Uh, can we be more predictive? Um, so it opens up the whole field, which we're now, where the industry is in now, which is around 
personalized precision medicine uh, and, and things like that. And so that's, that's how it all kind of started. Is there a better way to find safer and more effective medicines? And because at the time I felt like the guinea pig. <laughs> right. Of course. So, so you, so you ha- were thinking this, there's got to be a better way. Then you are talking to your friend who yeah. says he's actually working on a, a stem cell. Well, actually, he was, he was working on something that could be a representation of a person. But stem cell hadn't really come across our mind yet until we started digging in, which is what a lot of entrepreneurs do in the very beginning, which is you, you have a certain area where you're an expert. He, he's a PhD polymer chemist. We've both actually oddly worked in the semiconductor industry. So we had just high kind of manufacturing materials background, but we weren't really stem cell experts, mm-hmm. um, although he's very well read. And also done. We, we, at the time in 2014 now, we had, um, it was known that you can take any somatic cell, or let's say a skin cell or white blood cells, uh, cells with a nucleus and DNA in it, you could reprogram that through adjusting for genes and that discovery won the Nobel Prize in 2012. Hmm. And so then we said, well, if you could con- if you can do that, if you can take any cell and turn it into a stem cell and then those stem cells or these pluripotent stem cells, you know, made from skin can then be made into any other type of cell like brain cells or heart cells, that would be amazing. And you could potentially um, have these organ cells represent someone's own organ cells, anyone's organs, and test potential treatments on various diseases. So that was all kind of fuzzy. We were like, yeah, that could kind of be done. I wouldn't be cool. What are the big challenges? And we found early back in back then there weren't kits. So in in the in the biology industry, you know, kits to make uh, to make your own stem cells make your at own home. Cells. That wasn't yeah. happening. Yeah, that that wasn't that wasn't as now it's more common mm-hmm. um, to have that. So so large companies have kits where you can kind of make make them. But so did the two of you? Uh, did I mean first of all, just having that idea is kind of mind blowing. But then what in the world do you do? Did you go into a lab and start experimenting? <laughs> On on yourselves or what? How? What do you do? Uh, God, what did I? So it was actually this is back um, to you know lean startups. So now lean startups more common. It's across the country now. I think the University of Minnesota has connections to uh, that 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 teaching for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and and lean startup. A big common phrase you hear in in lean startup is get out of the building and talk to people. Um, I was very lucky around this time to have been, somehow my name got floated at, I was volunteering actually at the University of Minnesota, which is a great thing to do, <laughs> highly suggested. And, and I was, I think it was for an entrepreneurial class. And somehow through that class that I was volunteering, my name got floated to Mayo Clinic and they were starting their first wave or class of startups. So they had picked six startups and they were going to do a class on Lean Startup, and they needed mentors for the six um, startups. Okay. And I got selected to be one of them, and I got to go on, our, on the whole experience with them and learn with them. Ah. So... Did you leave your day job, or had you left your day job at this point? No, I was just doing <laughs> okay. double, du- double duty, I guess. I was maybe in the evenings volunteering. And, okay. 
and then in the evenings helping out, just just still doing my day job. And then that all happened before uh, Bob and I started Stemonic. So this is happening several months before um, April of 2014. Mm-hmm. And that's that gave me the confidence saying, okay, I just learned all these interesting tips and tricks and and how to make a business model canvas and and ask uh, you know customer you know questions and 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 try to find product market fit and all these things and I was, so I was armed with all this new ways of kind of thinking and I said to Bob that's a great idea um, this new provisional patent you just did but I just spent the last few months on this crash court on lead startup can we build a business model canvas around this idea and it was through the business model canvas and building out the nine quadrants of a canvas where we started investigating what would create product market fit and could you create a technology product slash service that could represent human a human organ or organ systems to be able to test the safety and effectiveness of drugs. And in that early in those early days, it was more like safety was more, um, we had more confidence that we could use these cells. Um, let's say we were to make brain cells or, or heart cells, that we were more confident that we can use it for safety. And that's kind of where the industry was at the time. Over the last several years, we now know that when you make the, let's say, brain cells of a child, so let's say you take a child's skin sample and you make um, induced pluripotent stem cells, and you make the child's brain cells, and then you form them into little tiny spheres the size of a poppy seed. If the child has a particular, um, let's say, rare disease, that mutation that causes that rare disease transfers all the way along the process to these spheroids or organoids is, is another common word that people use to describe them. There are differences, but for this audience, we'll just say <laughs> spheroids <laughs> and you. organoids. Thank you. And, our minds are already blown. <laughs> and and the characteristics of the child's disease, let's say it's a neurological disorder, those characteristics in the child's, the way the child's brain works shows up in these little spheres of little brain organoids. And... And now we're in the middle of it. So now we can take all these different diseases. What's on our website now is like Rett syndrome, which is um, a rare neurological disorder. CDKL5 deficiency disorder is another one. It's um, a very difficult disease. Uh, The seizures show up, I think, as early as two to four weeks in in an infant. Mm. So the little brains that we make, so skin, stem cell, IPS-induced polypropylene stem cell to brain cells, and then these little organoids that we make and we age them um, can represent these diseases. And so the, they have characteristics. So what are we representing? Not just the cells, the way the little cells look, but we're looking at the functionality. So so you're predicting whether uh, uh, how this disease is going to develop in a... Because you wouldn't do that unless the child was already showing signs of having it, Right. Yeah, so you might there might be children or families that decide, okay, we know our child has the disease, so we are now going to, you know, donate a sample of skin or a tooth falls out and you scrape out the pulp and dental, you know, nerve cells and, and you can convert that into induced pluripotent stem cells. For and the purpose of researching? For the purpose of researching, because okay. if you can mimic the disease in these little brains that we make, then 
you can screen potentially repurposed. Now with COVID and everything, we all know what repurposed compounds and, mm-hmm. and the power of that because you don't have to go through the whole clinic, you know, FDA and, and, and clinical phases potentially. Or you can use these uh, little brains to find new chemistry, new therapeutics. And, so that you're yeah. not testing it on the, the chi- child. Yeah. The child is not the guinea pig the way exactly. that you Exactly. Like okay. we don't want to be, you know, we don't want to be the guinea pig. We don't, we don't want to be the test vehicle for new drugs. But now the whole drug industry is in a very short amount of time able to, uh, through uh, stomonics and now Viant Bio, able to, to find new, new therapeutics. Hmm. So how, from, from the, the earliest uh, um, iteration of this idea and the thought that maybe you could do this and then sitting down and making, you know, kind of writing it out, hatching your business plan, how long did it take for Stemonics to actually get started? In 2015, we uh, joined Johnson & Johnson's J-Labs in San Diego, okay. which uh, you can rent a the size like actually smaller than the room that I'm in now like uh uh what is it like a six by ten kind of um lab space um they have even smaller than that you can rent a little um table bench and you can rent from them you have first off you have to get in J and J has to have interest in the technology or the business model but if you get in then they'll say okay well you rent our space and um and you can work on your idea and what I'm trying to, to understand is, did you know that this was going to work? I mean, was it, was it really just an idea when, when you set up shop in that lab and, and when you, you know, kind of launched the actual company, did you know that this would work? Was it a matter of selling the world on it or were you still experimenting to see if you could even do what you're talking about? Yeah, in the first days, it was, uh, we, we started with heart first and we wanted to be able to see if we can control the microenvironment around the cells to actually affect the cells themselves. And we were able to do that. It took a lot of trial and error um, to figure out what would be the best approach to uh, shape cells into fibers. And this is when we were working on cardiac. And um, yeah, that's how it started. It was just, we we didn't know if it was going to work, but we had early indications through um, research, which is why academic research and and kind of forward, really forward-looking kind of research is so important because it lays the the seeds or the or the early foundations of technologies that could be um, commercialized for the use of finding new medicines. Mm-hmm. So at this point, were you all in, mm-hmm, and, mm-hmm. and 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 you knew in the lab, like. You literally knew how to test, how to do this? Oh, how in the world did you no, know? Yeah. So that's the power of teams. That's okay. the power of teams. So, so Bob and I weren't stem cell people. Um, we needed to bring on, you know, world-class scientists. Mm-hmm. And uh, we were very lucky to uh, bring on a scientist from UC San Diego, a postdoc, who did have a background and figured out from reading the early papers how to convert someone's, let's say, back of the uh, arm uh, skin cells into these special induced pluripotent stem cells and um, and then differentiate them, that's the word we use, into different uh, heart cells. Mm-hmm. And then we found out that there was a whole institute at UC San Diego 
that had received uh, millions of dollars to study this kind of research. And so there were not only people studying the how to make heart cells, but also brain cells. But nobody had thought to apply it the way you wanted to. Well, what we brought differently was there was always excitement to just in the early days, just the differentiation, just to go from skin to induce polypotent stem cells to, you know, you name it, organ cell felt like a victory Mm -hmm. for scientists and people would study that. And what we said was, okay, that's great. But what's the biggest challenge? If you can't make it at scale and, and you have to be a PhD or, you know, professor leading a lab to figure out how to take these cells and make them in a way that's consistent enough to do drug screening, well, we just saw a gap. Like pharma, a lot of pharma companies are really chemistry companies. They're not, mm-hmm. they're not gonna, this was still really early for them. And, and so we said, well, if we can make, if we can do this process and also ship it anywhere in the world to them, that'd be pretty cool. <laughs> <laughs> and, and so we figured, I mean, it took years to figure out how to ship it. You know, we ship now we ship from from here in Minnesota, um, you know, we, sh- we we are in Maple Grove. We ship these brain plates all over the world. Unbelievable. And um, and that's kind of that, that was that was always there. It was like, OK, if we can do this. We'll have to figure out the shipping. I mean, you do these back of the envelope calculations and you're like, ooh, oh, we're going to need a lot more cells if we're going to do this. So we got to figure out the manufacturing. And it's like, oh, well, if we make these all, all these cells, like, how are we going to get it to the get it to the <laughs> We, mm-hmm. I mean, it's going to be so much more expensive if we have to go build a building next to a pharma, you know, pharma company. It'd be great if we could just ship them. So we figured out how to ship them. And, and, and so now when our, our plates of 384 little brain spheres show up at their shipping, they, within just a few days, they change the um, nutrient uh, liquid that's in the plates. And our our brains are highly functional. There's we form a neural network, and it and, and they have this kind of really beautiful synchronized uh, synaptic kind of activity that we can measure. I need a visual because you every time you say little brains, I'm picturing something that looks like a like a little. Do I need brain. to show it to you on my phone? Should... I mean, but it, just for for our audio audience here, I mean, is it? Is it flat? Is it is this in like a petri dish? Oh yeah, what yeah. Is it? So the the plate itself is um, about the size of a large uh, smartphone. It's made of plastic. It has little little um, quadrants in them in them that we call wells, and they come in different densities. So some some plates they're all kind of the same size, but you know some at the earliest stage might have six or then twelve, then twenty four of these little chambers. And they, they keep increasing in density. So all the way up to 384 in the same form factor. So if you have to fit that many little wells on a plate, the wells have to get smaller and smaller. Mm-hmm. And inside of these wells are, is liquid nutrient solution. And our brains are about half a millimeter in size. So they're like, well, they can be in there. They, they're actually, we can control the size. But the, 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 the point is, is that we make them very consistently about half a millimeter in size, and we have all the quality systems and, and measurement and, and response to normal um, drugs, uh, and so we're always you know checking those things. So we we built a whole kind of industrialized small we call it microbrains for as a trademark. So we make these little microbrains 
of the facility. Unbelievable. So all in the time that you were doing this, I mean, you were not, you know, a, a young single guy on your own who could just, you know, survive on on uh, candy bars. You had and a ramen. family, right? <laughs> ramen, of course. I was trying to be different. We always go to ramen. It's <laughs> okay. such a cliche. But did you, did, were you literally surviving on ramen? I mean, no. you had a daughter and a wife. Yeah. And how were you, how were you living while you were trying to figure all this out? Well, my goal was, you know, going through, of course, the cancer experience was enough change and uncertainty. Mm-hmm. So my goal that first year, so the, the second half of 2014 was to say, okay, I'm going to go do this, but I'm not really going to change your lifestyle so, so much, right? So we're going to kind of live, you know, basically kind of like normal, and we're going to see where this goes. So... So hopefully I didn't experience too much change other than the fact that I was working in the basement. <laughs> you, you had money saved? You had, I mean, did you oh, go yeah, yeah. So, get grants? Did you? No, no, not at all. So, so a little bit crazy. So it was just savings over the last X number of years working and, and just living off of savings. And it literally went all the way down to... Basically zero. And, and your wife was supportive? Yeah. <laughs> Did she understand what you were? She's like, what do you mean you're going to make little brains? <laughs> uh, she's pretty I... smart, too. She's a... Yeah, she's a yeah, PhD. Yeah. Um, I, think, I think the startup, not to cut open too much of a vein, but I think the startup was really an opportunity as a couple to, um, you know, for her to show that support. Mm-hmm in an uncertain situation. And um, and she's been amazing, really, through this whole experience to to live through that. And, and, that, and really, that's just that first year is just the beginning. And then when it went to zero, basically, that's when we received our first investment in the company. Hmm. And um, which for all of you entrepreneurs out there, it's like, you know, it's like a breath of fresh air. It's like, oh, I can breathe again and, and, and keep, keep going on this idea. And um, just keep at it. Just, we, you know, we can keep figuring it out. Did you have to go out there and, and raise money yourself? Yeah, I, yeah mm-hmm. I did all the, I'm almost all the um, fundraising. I think by the end, 30, it's so funny. In the beginning, it's like the first, you know, 25, 50,000, it seems impossible. But by the end, the, 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 the numbers get chunkier. <laughs> and um, yeah, 30 plus million, I think, was raised. Wow. Um, and then, of course, now, um, we did the merger and, and, and became Buy and Bio. Well, I want to talk about that. But I'm one, one question for you, especially when you're talking about anything medical related, it is such a long path and it requires so much money to, to get an actual product. How did you, it, it has, you, you need the money to survive, but if you're not working on the innovation, what happens? I mean, how did you divide your time or how did you approach it in those early days when it was really just you and your partner? That's a great question. You got to be in the lab, but then you have to raise money, which is like a whole other job. Yeah, and so you know, my mentor and, and first um, um, board member Stephen, he would say, you know, your your goal with the first funding is to achieve risk mitigation milestones and to prove to investors that you're making progress. Hmm. And that's what we did. So we'd raise money, say, you know, we're going to do this, this, and this, and work our butts off to do those things. Mm-hmm. And also see if there would be traction 
And that was the advantage of Jay and being in the J&J incubator. We were able to build enough expertise where they started saying, okay, like, can you help us with what you're doing? Like, we're trying to do the same thing. Can you help us? And so we'd help them. And then we made the the really big discovery, which is around the brain spheres. So, and that um, happened when? I don't remember the year now, but it was at least four or so years ago. So um, we had brought on a brilliant scientist, Cassiano, who uh, was the first in the world to recapitulate or mimic Rett syndrome, which is that neurological disorder in, in children. He was the first in the world to do that. And we worked with him to scale things up. So Bob and I knew scale. Mm-hmm. The rest of the team knew stem cells. And so it was all about, okay, how do we like, you know, m- meld our brain, our minds together to take what you do in the lab in an academic setting and make it industrialized and at scale and consistent and with all the infrastructure around it and quality and all of that. So when did you, when did Stemonics, your original company, when did you start shipping your mm. laboratory brains? When, when did you start having customers and, and was it hospitals? Was it labs? When, when did you start actually, you know, selling this product? Yeah, I remember the day. I, t- I always take pictures. So I remember the day off to look at my phone. But I think I remember it, shipping wasn't, shipping in the early days was easy because it was walk it down the hall <laughs> to the J&J scientists that needed something, mm-hmm. right? So that's when we started getting paid. Um, for that, for our expertise. Mm. And then it was like, and then there was this discovery that the, the recipe or the protocol that we use to make our brains happen to exist um, for long periods of time. So previous to stomonics, people often looked at neurons in a, in a very pure way. And after a couple of weeks, you know, these neurons would die off, you know, and these would be neurons that were made from, let's say, the same process and do sporiform stem cells. But our protocol um, makes not just the neurons, but a special type of cells that we have a lot in our brains called astrocytes. And we're able to make them together. And the astrocytes are kind of like roots of a tree. They kind of help with the absorption of nutrients and a whole other, ex- other exciting things around health or interesting roles in disease. But we were able to make these both types of cells and they wouldn't die off after a couple of weeks. They would just keep hmm. on keep on going like the energy bunny. And we were able to keep them around long enough. And we had some other technologies where we were able to then observe that when you bring a bunch of tens of thousands of these cells initially together, you know, brain cells, they are synaptically firing, but they haven't really formed a network yet. And that takes many weeks. And so what we brought to the industry was this concept of having multiple cell types that enable these little brain spheres to, I guess, live long enough, form a neural network to actually have, you know, communication amongst itself. And then we can measure that. And so from those measurements comes, interestingly, the world of of software and data science. So we eventually, over the last several years, have gone there as well. Wow. Wow. So was that the big... Aha. Uh-huh. I mean, was that the moment when you knew Stemonics and this company and all of the years of work that you've been doing, it, it's going to pay off? Mm, it, in the R&D meeting, it was definitely when, when we were watching this beautiful um, oscillation. We were looking at this kind of, this, it's almost like a, 
this 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 wave. It looks like the sinusoidal wave of of signal that we're watching, and we're watching you know tens of thousands of brain cells the size of half a millimeter up on the big screen, mm-hmm. you know, and it's just pulsating in front of you, and you're like, mm, this is a, this is probably you know a pretty amazing, you know, <laughs> we're, we're this is this gonna we're gonna have to figure out how to um, use this, and and for toxicity, of course, but. Really, it was can we at scale mimic diseases, and that's what we've gotten really good at, and what uh, people come to us for. So, um, at what point could you consider? It's so it's such a different trajectory in med tech than in some other industries where it's like, okay, we made this product, now people are buying it, and you can see if you're, you know, you're profitable or you're not. Your lab discovery it then takes a while to become. Uh, is there a point at which you said now this is a commercial success, or is that instantaneous? <laughs> I think we're all, we're co- constantly still, you know, growing it, finding partners, um, working with uh, many of the top uh, pharma companies in the world, and small biotechs and uh, government agencies like um, the NIH and NCATS, and and doing things on. Uh, the Heal Initiative, for example, which is helping to end, end addiction long term. So, this is such a platform technology. It's just you know the biggest challenge is focus, and and how do we focus on the key diseases to demonstrate um, this technology? You know, this is only a technology that's about ten, little over ten years old, mm-hmm. and in most industries like tech, that's a really long time. But I think in the biotech world. People say it's been like a blink of an eye in terms hmm. of how quickly this is getting adopted in the industry, and it's exciting to be a part of of that change. So, not it's exciting in itself if we can find new therapeutics for you know children with rare diseases, but it's also exciting to say you know what in the grand history of biology, you have a hand in making these technologies as a new way of doing things. So instead of yeah maybe uh, a biochemical assay that then goes to maybe some animal testing that goes into larger animal testing <laughs> that eventually, you know, eight, 10 years later goes into uh, first in human kind of studies. What we're now enabling a whole industry to do is say, okay, instead of waiting eight, 10 plus years to see what a human response will be, let's just do it now. Hmm. Yeah, yeah. So when you think about your initial thesis and your initial idea, uh, what you went in the lab with Bob to, to try to figure out, it sounds like you're, you're pretty close to what you wanted to do. Yeah, I mean, I would, I would agree. I think that's the power of a business model canvas is early on, you want to make as many business model changes as you can. You want to get to the right quadrant that you think you need to be in. Mm-hmm. Because changes when you're small are relatively cheap. Mm. Changes when you're big are really expensive. Mm-hmm. So, so you want to make as many pivots and changes and, you know, as you can when you're small. That that's would be the advice there. So just, uh, what, a year or two ago, Stemonics merged with Viant. Actually, like... Less than five months. Ago. Is that? Oh my gosh! It's that recent. Okay, <laughs> let's let's start. So so it was in twenty twenty one. Well, actually, that's twenty twenty. Well, actually, you're you're you are correct in the sense that the merger closed five months ago. Okay. But the 
vetting kind of initial process was well it was like a year. Okay. You're right. You're right. I, I re- so that's I just where remember- the year and a half comes okay. from. Okay. All right. Because we, we, um, and I took the i, I took the idea from my Seagate days of when we were working with Samsung. You know, when I was leading this amazing project, the reason why that project existed was I think the leadership said, you know, let's see if the two companies can even work together. And I had the wonderful opportunity to bridge not only the technical gaps, but the cultural gaps, you know, between, you know, South, South Korean sure. and, and multiple sites in the U.S. And I said, you know what, we have to do the same thing here with um, Stemonics and CGIX. And we, you know, started just working together on, on certain projects and we worked pretty well together. But really, the calculus was also knowing where we wanted to be as a company and um, the kind of change we wanted to make to the industry. And what we learned was as a induced pluripotent stem cell company that was just only in the human cell, you know, human organoid, you know, space, getting a drug to market and progressing it forward still needed expertise in the existing infrastructure of drug discovery. You still needed the know-how of uh, in vivo um, testing. Mm-hmm. And you still needed that late stage preclinical before you go into human expertise. And, and so we felt that the thesis was if we can merge the, the, the value of our human um, organoid approach or these human cell, what we do, with kind of a traditional approach and figure out how best to make that whole process more effective and efficient, then we're going to have a leg up and and quickly finding new targets, uh, new therapeutics that could quickly progress through the process faster and get to patients even faster. So that's what Viant does, and that's why you were you you both have different specialties, and so you you can help each correct, other. Correct, correct. So so this wasn't them buying you. This really was a a, a merger, a partnership. Yeah, we were about the same size. So to your to your point, we were about. 35-ish people, and they were about the same size. I think that... They're based where? So they have uh, multiple locations. Um, We now have multiple locations, but they brought in the Hershey, Pennsylvania site, um, a couple sites in Australia, and um, a business office in Germany. And, and uh, is the whole Stemonics team here in the Twin Cities, or do you have people all We over? have our... Here we do... Uh, some development and um, manufacturing, and then we have more research and development in San Diego. Okay. So we did eventually move out of the J and J J Labs because we started we started taking up more and more lab space, and it was like, <laughs> all right, we know you work, so uh, now it's time to you've got you should graduate now, so go and find your own you know larger facility. So that's why we're just around the corner from there amongst all the. Um, top pharma companies. So you now have a, a different title, mm-hmm. uh, Chief of Innovation. Mm-hmm. And um, how different is your day-to-day? What role are you playing in this new uh, combined company? Well, I get to focus more on on innovation. So, you know, as, as a CEO, you have to be on top of all aspects of the company. Um, being Chief Innovation Officer allows me to focus on uh, key aspects of innovation that's going to accelerate what we're doing even faster. So I do have the responsibility of not only working on technologies that would advance us forward, but also partnerships. 
and partnerships in two ways. One in strategic partnerships. So who can we partner with to advance us, advance the vision that we're trying to create? And then number two, partners that want to work with us to advance um, a therapeutic forward and more of a customer perspective. So that's that's what I've been focusing on. What about your original partner? What about Bob? What is he doing? Oh, he's he's still the interim chief science officer. Okay. Um, yeah. So um, is it more fun now? It seems like you've kind of, this, this merger allowed you to really get in there and, and focus on what you like and you don't have to worry about the business stuff. Or do you like the business side of it too? Because you did have that vision in a way that a lot of science geeks don't necessarily. Yeah, I, I do enjoy it. I do en- uh, enjoy the breadth of, the, of being involved in the business. But we have a great team. And it's really, this merger has allowed me to be around brilliant people that have a ton of experience, whether it's running a public company to um, everybody's bringing their own expertise and I get to learn from them as well. So it's been, I think, really fun from that standpoint, which is having peers that are really joining, joining the effort to paint this picture that started in, you know, my basement, Bob's kitchen, right? you know, eight plus whatever years ago. And um, yeah. Is there one um, goal or milestone that you find yourself shooting for right now? I mean, if you think back to your initial, you know, thinking about your own testing your heart to, to make sure you'd be able to withstand the chemo, it, is there something that you want to a- accomplish? Oh, absolutely. I think Having a therapeutic that we discover that makes a difference in a patient would be the ultimate milestone. Mm-hmm. And um, you know, if we can make a difference in a child that's having multiple seizures a day, or change the course of development for a child with RET, or you know, we have our eyes set on larger, uh, common diseases like Parkinson's. You know, we have. Um, many other uh, projects as well in, you know, areas of dementia. And it would be absolutely incredible to have a hand in making a therapeutic that really changes lives. And I think that we're sitting on a technology and we have a company that really is so unique in the world because we have figured out, we put in the hard, hard, hard yards, brick by brick, to figure out the biology side of all this um, and to make it consistent enough to do drug screening. Mm-hmm. And as opposed to there's some companies now that are promising the world through AI and software that don't have the biology. And yet um, I think we're in a really good place to be able to affect more change through the biology and um, and the software. It's kind of amazing. I mean, we're at a time when so many of us are focusing on you know, science and vaccines and medicine in ways we maybe hadn't previously because we're all in this pandemic. Do you think, um, and and you think about how quickly the vaccines came, relatively speaking, and and you referenced that. Are we at a moment where things are are accelerating even beyond? I mean, what what do you think the next five years will hold for, for your company and just for, you know, bio innovation in general? Hmm. Yeah, I think that it's just going to get faster. <laughs> the the there's almost so much information out there. You you almost need certain aspects of AI 
to read all the papers and understand the um, interaction of one technology to another. There's almost so much information coming out there that you need that. So it is, it is accelerating and they're intersecting in all these different ways. So you, even a few years ago, you're seeing it was induced pluripotent stem cells. Oh, okay, so if you can make the stem cells of a, of a patient's, you know, person's skin and then make lots of stem cells or induced pluripotent stem cells from that patient, you now have almost this infinite inventory of this person that you can go make their um, brains of. Um, and what if that inter- what if that intersected with um, now genetic engineering and, and CRISPR? And now there's even mm-hmm. other forms of not just CRISPR, but other other forms where you're looking at um, RNA as well. So, and what if that intersects with this uh, manufacturing, you know, scale? But now all of that is intersecting with AI, machine learning, data science, and so this confluence of technologies is all happening now and we're really lucky to be in the middle of it. I feel really lucky that there are smart people like you who are thinking about things like this for dumb people I'm like okay. me. I'm, I'm just average. <laughs> I just surround myself with uh, smart people. Okay, sure, sure. <laughs> well, I mean, my head hurts just trying to like keep up with, with the words that are coming out of your mouth. You are in this all day, every day. How do you keep your wits about you? How, when, when you're dealing with things that are so big and so far ahead of most of us, how do you just, how do you decompress? Um, well, actually, it's interesting. So when I was going through my chemo, I uh, was also on a lot of steroids and uh, to manage the nausea. So I didn't know that, but, but it also made me really irritable. <laughs> and um, so it wasn't the most fun to, to be around during that time. Um, but my mom said, saw something in the um, newspaper, and, and it was a meditation master from China mm-hmm. and um, who was teaching a form of uh, meditation and energy movement called Qigong. And she goes, um, let's go see this guy, you know? And I'm like, all right, you know? And he just, the first few lessons, he did it for free initially, and he would teach just how to do deep breathing and kind of diaphragmic breathing. And just two days later, my wife, um, Midwestern, you know, kind of, she was like, I don't know what this Qigong is, but I love it. <laughs> and, um, and because I just was way calmer and there was no side effects, you're just practicing meditation and breathing. And so ever since then, every day mm-hmm. since then, I meditate every morning, 20 to 30 minutes. Wow. And, and that's made all the difference because it really, clears my buffers and you know like we've all had that moment where you've you have so much on your mind even the simplest thing it would be difficult difficult to calculate or think about but you know when you meditate you're able to clear your mind and it feels like i I did a um, ted talk on this one it feels like you know those picture puzzles that you those tile puzzles that you Mm -hmm, make mm -hmm. there's only one open spot and you're trying to make this picture it takes forever and when you meditate it's like doing that picture puzzle, but instead of one open square, you have unlimited. You know, it's like you can just move the tiles wherever you want. Hmm. So it's it's super powerful, I think, to for entrepreneurs to, um, you know, sit, clear your mind. It doesn't have to be as you know, Eastern philosophy as 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 what I'm describing it. But even just sitting down at a table with a pad and pencil, um, and have some thinking time, 
uh, is super powerful. Yeah, yeah. Well, that that's uh, very inspiring. I'm you. I'm going to try it again because generally I fall asleep when I try to <laughs> meditate. So that doesn't speak very highly of my brain function. <laughs> you, you, yeah, I actually did. Uh, um, I had friends who at the end of this little experience were like, "Oh, you got to write a book." I'm like, "I don't have time for a book, but I will do. I will do. You know, two to four, whatever, five minute um, uh, videos." of my experience at can uh, of cancer and how to do this deep breathing and all this stuff. So if you just search my name and type in Q-I-G-O-N-G, you'll see, I'll actually describe how to do it. So you can actually just watch it. Ah, watch it and I describe it. Yeah. Okay, I'm going to go home and try that. <laughs> Thank you very much. Maybe that's something I can do because certainly it will be nothing like what you're doing in the lab. What, one last question for you, Ping. You're, you're, you have innovation in your title. Obviously, innovation is at the center of everything you've been doing. Most of us aren't going to be able to operate and innovate at the level that you are. But oh, they what can. Is your, they can. Well, that, what is your best <laughs> advice? What, whatever it is, I mean, you know, it, it, it can apply to, to any field. What is your best advice for getting in the right frame of mind to think innovatively? Right now, I think it's two things. One is that be careful of the beliefs that you have. They're kind of these invisible like bars and walls that might hold you back. So be careful of um, of the beliefs that you that you hold um, because it, it affects really your how you see the world mm -hmm. and the decisions you make and your overall attitude really. Um, but it, it affects your decisions, the questions you ask, um, which of course leads to the in, the answers from those questions. So beliefs are really, really powerful because eventually if it's affecting your decisions, it's affecting the course of, of your life or your career or this um, company that you're trying to start. Um, and then the second thing, having gone through the first wave of the pandemic the last year and a half, I'd say that it's only over, it's definitely over if you choose to quit. Hmm. So if you quit, it's definitely over. Mm -hmm. and, um, and if you don't, and every day you wake up and say, you know what, we're going we're gonna to figure it out. We're going to do our best and figure it out and put in all our effort and passion into it. Then you'll, then you'll be able to figure it out. But if you quit, then that's the only surefire way to have it end. Good point. Well, Ping, thank you so much for sharing your story with us and inspiring all of us and for, for doing really big things. Thank you for having me. This was fun. Well, Ping's story is uh, pretty spectacular and might leave you thinking, gosh, uh, I sure couldn't do what he did. But I think there's still a lot that the rest of us can take away from hearing the story of Stemonics and Viant Bio. And to put it in some perspective, let's go back to the classroom with the University of St. Thomas Schultz School of Entrepreneurship. I am so eager to hear Associate Professor John McVeigh's thoughts on Ping Ye's story. John? Oh, thank you so much. I love this story. Uh, and, you know, when we step back from this wonderful story, what, what, what strikes me is what a reminder that entrepreneurship is a deeply human experience. How do you mean that? Well, it's so easy for us to make the mistake of just putting entrepreneurship in a little economic sphere mm -hmm. and using language like monetization and profit maximization. 
and really forgetting that this is a deeply human experience coming from all aspects of our lives. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, how could we understand this story if we couldn't picture the little boy with immigrant parents who are, you know, trying to reinvent themselves as Americans in a new environment? Right. And without the image of this geeky little kid who's just <laughs> following his parents' pathways because he really doesn't have much more guidance. Or the terrified young man who suddenly finds right in the prime of his life, he's facing death. And, you know, that his life's just become a lottery. And also this sort of new special freedom that he seems to talk about, that his illness gave him to explore what really matters. You can't understand the entrepreneurial story without all of those aspects, deeply human aspects, which actually feed in another sort of food for the economic story that ultimately grows out of it. So, uh, you know, I, I love the story. It's just it's it's inspiring. <laughs> I knew you would like this one. And of course, the the one thing that uh, Ping really never talks about is money. That 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 is certainly not the the driver in his uh, in his developments. Absolutely not. And you know that is an important part. We hear that on a number of stories. It turns out there there aren't that many entrepreneurs who are you know dominantly um, motivated by money. But what's more interesting from his story for me is the lack of intentionality for action. The lack of, I set out with this great goal, I had to search and find an entrepreneurial idea and then figure out my actions to take it to market. And we hear this a lot from our students. They sort of say often, what do I have to do to become a successful entrepreneur? Mm -hmm. right, what are my steps? What do I have to do? And what this story reminds me is that's probably not the best question. A much better question is, how should I be in hmm. order to become a successful entrepreneur? How should I be in my life? What sort of habits, what sort of ways of living, what sort of things should I be doing in that entrepreneurship will happen to me and around me? That's a truer description of what's really going on here. So you know, I, I would love to go into some of these ideas of lean startup and how those really can demonstrate some of the ways we ought to try to be if we want to become more entrepreneurial rather than just a set of activities. Right. Well, that's that's what your entrepreneurship classes are for, of course, right? <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. And not just set, setting a set of tools. So, for instance, you know, instead of just saying, do this, carry out this, do your market research, find an idea, go and raise capital. A more appropriate thing is to think of what are these habits of being, ways of living as a human that make us more innovative and more unlikely to uncover new solutions. So some of them that just came out of this story is, uh, you know, being able to value the customer itself as a human being. Mm -hmm. So a person with a problem, not a technical problem. So if I'm working with you and you've got a problem with your radio show, I'm not trying to cut, produce a technical solution that will give better reception. I'm trying to solve a problem for Alison, mm -hmm. who has a problem with her radio show's uh, accessibility. Mm -hmm. That frames the problem fundamentally differently. Another thing is, you know, um, the answer is not in the room. The answer is not coming from an individual necessarily, going into the basement and figuring out in their own brain how to crack the atom. What I hear through his story is, 
staying in constant contact with all sorts of groups of people who you never know will be useful or not. Volunteering at the U of M, you know, staying in touch with young mentees, getting great advice from his mother, um, getting advice from other business partners, constantly being in a network of people who are open to new ideas. Right. It's that holistic approach. Absolutely. Yeah. And then, you know, last, framing these problems early, what Lean Startup tells us as a business uh, canvas concept. And what that's a fancy term, what it really means is not just talking about the product and its features, but actually thinking through all the way of how do we create something that solves something for Alison, the person with the problem. Mm -hmm. And so, for example, it turns out the problem was not in creating customized stem cells. The actual problem was delivering mini brain cells in a convenient flat plastic strip hmm. delivered anywhere in the world conveniently to scientists in a way that allowed them to focus on their main task, which was figuring out patient uh, drug treatment sensitivities. Right. right. That was the solution. And it turns out our biggest problem there was delivery problems. Right. It wasn't about the science. It was about how do we deliver this? We only see that if we see this as a human problem of trying to solve it for a real human rather than just trying to crack the scientific case. You're so right. It's it, it's so easy to get hung up on the mini brains, right? Building a brain. But at the end of the day, you're, you're absolutely right. It's about how do I have to be and what am I trying to do on a human level? Right. And the best way to do that is to think about how we carry ourselves in life in a way that we are open to entrepreneurship as opposed to trying to plan our lives as a series of actions that are going to lead towards entrepreneurship. There you go. I, I knew that you would be able to frame it up in great perspective that all of us could understand and hopefully relate to. <laughs> thank you, John, as always. Thanks a lot. That was great. Thank you, John McVeigh, and thank you to our presenting sponsor, the University of St. Thomas Schultz School of Entrepreneurship. Thank you for listening to the show. If you want to catch up on past episodes or learn more about By All Means, go to tcbmag.com slash by all means. And thanks again for listening. Teamwork to make by all means, and we've got some all stars. Thanks to our audio engineer, Tom Ferlitti. Digital support is Ricky Hannigan and Dan Nepo. Thanks to the University of St. Thomas Senior Media Relations Manager, Vanita Sakar, and Associate Dean of the Schultz School of Entrepreneurship, Laura Dunham, for all their help. Our theme music is by Songfinch. Hope you enjoyed by all means. Mm-hmm.